What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I'm doing round two with Rob Morant from Unbroken. So we're picking up where we left off last time, and we're going all the way through to present day. Also, uh, two things. First off, you got to pre-order the new Retaliate record. Go to indecisionrecords.com and handle business. Also, tomorrow is election day, so you got to go out and vote. And, uh, yeah, come up with a plan. If you haven't already voted, figure out how you're going to do it. Also, if you think you missed your opportunity and you didn't register to vote, there are a ton of states that have same-day voter registration. So you can go register at the polls and vote. Here are the states you can do that in. California, Colorado, Connecticut, D.C., Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Iowa, Maine, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, Nevada, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Utah, Vermont, Washington, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. If you live in those states, there is same-day voter registration. So get out there and handle business. Um, Please support the pod by subscribing to it wherever you listen to it. Also, please like, rate, and review it. If you want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and become a patreon uh for all the interview podcasts i'm trying to do a bonus patreon episode where i have some people on and we talk about that podcast we also go through a discography of the person i interviewed also there's a playlist for every episode just go to the website 185 miles south.com and click that playlist link now let's get on with the pod Hundred eighty five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, you know him, you love him. He's actually episode forty nine, it's part two of Rob Moran. What's up, Rob? What's up, Zach? How are you? I'm doing good. I'm just glad to have you back. You know, it's like episode one, we decided to, or your first episode, we were going a little long. We decided to cut it off and do a part two. And then it's, it's hard to know where to slide in the part two, you know, like, do you do it the following week? Like I did that with the first Todd episode or do you let it like breathe a little bit? So I'm just glad to have you back. Yeah. I, 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 I think it's great that you, you let it breathe a little bit. Yeah, you gotta you gotta make them wait for it, you know. So, oh yeah, yeah, it's so so popular. <laughs> <laughs> you, Million. I, I mean, you were one of the more popular guests, so you, you know this, Rob. You you low rate your popularity a lot. <laughs> you know? I just try not to. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Humble brag. How about that? There you go. There you go. <laughs> so the last time we wrapped up, and, and I should just say, the first interview we did in person, this is now COVID time, so we're on the phone, even though we live in the same city. So kind of awkward, but uh, bear with us, dudes. We're doing what we can do. I think that the last pod we ended with you leaving Kill Holiday, which is an easy story to remember because you went and saw Danzig. Danzig and Marilyn Manson's first U.S. San Diego show, actually. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. and and that shows a little bit of like a generation gap between the two of us because, like, for me, I just remember Marilyn Manson kind of being like a mall metal band, you know. But was it actually like kind of edgy at the time if you were into it? Yeah, I, I would say it straddled the line of of mall metal hot topic. So I think it, it became hot topic post like Antichrist Superstar. Like prior to that, it was I I don't know. It was, I was. I think I've always just been kind of into weird shit musically. Um, and I don't know if Marilyn Manson's weird or not, but just kind of eclectic, I would say. I like a lot of different things. And so for me, it just sounded heavy and brutal. And I thought the imagery was cool and it was just strange and weird. So I didn't really think anything of it at the time. Um, but yeah, I think after Andy Christ Superstars, I would consider it cool mall metal hot topic genre yeah 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 um so you leave kill hall day and then i don't know the gap between that and unbroken doing a reunion so what do you do when you leave kill hall day after the dancing show um after the dancing show <laughs> immediately after uh, the dancing show first off where, yeah, do, you go, where I mean, do you go to I, eat and then what do you do <laughs> i don't remember um but I, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of, I, I moved up to Orange County and moved in with Hartsfield and Mandel um, to go work at New Age, actually. I um, I knew how to silkscreen and I, I still know how to silkscreen. And so I had a job in San Diego, like in between tours, like doing silkscreening and stuff. And I, um, Mike needed a silkscreener and he's like, you're not doing anything. Like, why don't you move up? here and just work at network sound um you know with me and dennis and you know you can still screen so um a lot pretty much any i would say probably 90 percent of the shirts from uh mid 95 through um uh, 97 were um were probably screened by me (laughs) so any redemption 87 shirt was done by you yeah, I did Redemption 87, Resurrection, Lifetime, Turning Point, and Broken Stuff. Like, I did it all. Um, I worked there for about probably a year, year and a half, something like that. Um, and then the the place we were all living in was just like condo, and, and um, we were all moving out. And so me and Mandel um, decided to move in together um, in Westminster. And at the same time, you know, just friendly with Jordan Cooper at Rev and, and just would pop by there all the time and talk and go play arcade games, whatever with him. Um, and we just started talking and I said, what are you ever going to do with Crisis Records? Like, what was the deal with that? And he kind of gave me the backstory and I was like, why don't you reactivate it? And he goes, yeah, kind of a good idea. And then like a week later, he's like, do you want to like reactivate the label and start bringing bands in and you can work at Rev and um and you know in between and i said sure and so i ended up working at rev for a while um as a rep and working um sales basically and help still screen sometimes when dave fine would go out of town um and um yeah and started signing bands to crisis and um doing helping mail order silk screen sales to record shops and yeah it was a great time and then, um, 
then my mom had surgery and I had to move back to San Diego to take care of her for about four months and Rev needed help uh, with a couple tours. And so I did the Battery 10-Yard Fight U.S. tour. I booked that and uh, a few other things. Um, did part uh, a few legs of an Iceland tour and, and a couple other things. And then uh, then got a job at a record shop and worked there for a while. And then got a job in fraud prevention and started doing that for um, e-commerce companies. And I've been doing that type of work ever since. And uh, and then started doing bands again, like in the late nineties. So it kind of just floated around with like different jobs here and there until I kind of landed on a career, but started doing bands again, um, like 98, 99, started getting back into playing again. Yeah. <clears throat> that'll lead us right into doing over my dead body. But let me just ask about crisis briefly. What was yeah. the point of that label? Because like nineties rev is pretty eclectic. Why have like a spinoff label? Hey, you know, from, from what I remember and kind of what Jordan, um, was telling me that it was kind of stemmed from Walter. Like he wanted to do something kind of wanted to get a label going and like put out friends bands and kind of just do some different things. And then that's kind of how crisis started, you know, like putting out um, a few different records, like onion and, um, uh, I think a few other releases and stuff. I think he put out like five or six releases maybe before he stopped. And so, um, yeah. And then he just, you know, probably got busy with quicksand and other things and then kind of, you know, it kind of just trailed off, um, for him and they just left it alone. And then, um, yeah. And that was kind of the point. It was just kind of a sub label to put out bands that, you know, might not fit AKA the rev mold, but you know, they still wanted to support and, and that's kind of what, what it was. But yeah, I, that part I never kind of really understood because they started to put out different types of music on rev by that point, by the time that label was going, it wasn't just like strictly, you know, heavy hardcore type stuff. They were doing a little bit of everything by that point. And so, um, but yeah, I think it was mainly just, for Walter to, to put some stuff out. And then I took it over in the mid nineties. Is there anything that stands out um, from that time? Like that you put out or had your hands in that, like you're still really proud of now? Yeah. I mean, obviously the Shai Haloub stuff, I mean, that, that stuff was phenomenal. Um, and then I, I love the, the Chinchilla record still. Um, it's phenomenal. Like um, band from San Diego. They kind of like a Casbah band, like they used to play this local venue in San Diego called the Casbah. It's pretty legendary. Uh, it's been around since uh, late '80s, early '90s, and it's kind of like San Diego's CBs. Um, like everyone played there: Mud Honey, Nirvana, uh, Laughing Hyenas, White Stripes, The Strokes. It's like over the years, like up and coming bands all passed through and play that place. And so, um, uh, but Chinchilla was like one of those bands that kind of played, um, played that, that club a lot. And Julie, who's one of the uh, main songwriters in that band, I worked with her at this record store in San Diego called Off the Record and um, thought she was talented and, and so was her band. And so I put them out. And so, yeah, I mean, those, those things I'm like really, really proud of. And, um, 
you know, the beta minus mechanic was interesting and different and kind of poppy, kind of had an ashes vibe to it. And, you know, so yeah, I, I like everything that I was able to put out with that label. So jumping into Overminded Body, um, first off, what makes you want to do a band again? And then also like, where, where do you think the San Diego scene was at that time? And, and like, what were like the goals? Like, was there, a, was there an overarching goal of wanting to play music again? Or did you just want to have fun with your friends, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what it was. I mean, there was bands, you know, like Built to Last and um, NIV and a few other bands like that, that were playing shows in San Diego. And, you know, I was still going to shows, you know, I was still booking shows in, in town for bands and, you know, booked Botch and Ink and Dagger and, phase of the day and at the drive-in Jimmy world. Like I, I booked a lot of shows still. So I still like heavily involved in the scene and, and doing, doing shows. Um, but I just wasn't playing music. It just like, wasn't, I, I felt I just needed to take a break from it for a while. Um, because it was just, I don't know. I, I think I was scared to play again because I didn't think anything I would do could ever live up to what I was in. And so I, I was always scared that anything I do would be compared to unbroken and which it is, I guess, but it's, I had to get over that and it took a long time to get over that. And, um, and so when Daniel approached me and was like, Hey, and Daniel and Aaron, like, Oh, we got this band. Do you want to play? And, um, and it sounded great. And I went to a couple practices and kind of picked up the songs pretty quick. And then we just started writing music and, and then it was just fun. Like for me, it was just about having fun and playing in a hardcore band that was different than anything I'd ever done. It was kind of, kind of seven seconds, kind of, uh, um, uh, kind of heavy. And I don't know, it was just a little different than anything I'd played musically before. Like it was, when it comes to hardcore and, and so I, I, and I was playing with my friends. So for me, it was, it was just for fun and to do a straight edge band and, and, and have a good time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's much more straightforward than the stuff you'd done. I mean, I, I never heard the, the band that you played drums for your first band, right? Was, didn't you say that on yeah. the, on the previous? Yeah. Humor. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I still haven't tracked that down yet, but, uh, but yeah, I, so I, I don't know how that sounded. But this is like, you know, a more straightforward hardcore lane. And just to jump yeah, back a tad, sure. Rob, did you do the Saves the Day show at the Shea? No, I did the one before that at the Empire Clubs. It was their very first show. They opened for Bane. It was Bane and Saves the Day. It was both their first shows in San Diego. Yeah, I, did didn't, I didn't come for that. I saw that show at the Showcase. And that's like when it merged with that battery, the battery tenor fight too, I think, right? that you were booking, like those all converged. Yeah. I don't remember the, that happening at the showcase. I wasn't at the showcase show, so I don't really remember, um, what, who all played at that. But, um, but yeah, the Bane and Space of Day show, I think it was, had to be 97, 98, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when that show happened, that rules. So, so jumping, yeah. jumping in over my body, um, what do you remember about like recording the demo and like, how did it feel to like have the piece of music in your hand? How were you objectively feeling about it? 
I, I was objectively happy. I thought the demo was fun. It sounded cool. I, I, I don't think there was anything on there that I wasn't stoked about. And, um, and I was ready, like, okay, like, let's, you know, let's put out a seven inch and see where this goes and, and let's have fun and start to play out and, and, um, and, and just see like what the vibe is, if people are into this or not. And I, you know, I was nervous. I still get like horrible, horrible nerves playing shows. And so to like come back and start playing in a hardcore band, plus like being scared of what are people going to think of it. And then just the nerves of playing in general. So it was the first few shows were really nerve wracking for me, but they ended up always being really fun. Do you remember the first show by any chance? Um, n- no, not not particularly. But I I just remember that first like six months when we started playing out uh, that that it was fun. Like it was fun. The response was great. People were into it. We were into it. Um, There's just always a good energy. Like that part I remember pretty vividly. It's just kind of the energy and vibe of the shows. Yeah, I mean that that time is like such a crucial time for a lot of San Diego kids that are still around now. I mean, if you talk to like Kim Possible or you know Anthony Guzman, like you know these are like punk and hardcore lifers now from here, and like you're one of the first bands that you know that they could regularly go to shows to, and that vibe that Overland Body gave off is like very inclusive, right? Yeah, and that was the whole point of the band. It was like, yeah, we're straight edge and stuff, but it doesn't mean that's all we are. It doesn't mean that, you know, punks or whatever crust kids or whatever you're into doesn't mean we can't all just have fun, right? And that was the whole point of it was, you know, trying to make an inclusive scene in San Diego and not have people like be worried that they're going to be judged or made fun of because they're into different things. And that was, I think why, like on that seven inch, there was so many different covers, right. Of of just different things to kind of say like, Hey, we like all kinds of different music. It doesn't have to be just hardcore. And that, that vibe kind of stuck through uh, the whole way with the band. I thought. Yeah. So the demo, and then you do a split with swindle. Those both come out in the year 2000. Um, Mm -hmm. and 2001 is like pretty busy for a young band because you do the, the no runner seven inch, you do a split with, uh, time X on fight and you do your first LP. Um, but let's talk about the seven inch first. Cause this for, I like everything you guys did, but this seven inch is like maybe the most palatable just cause a lot of times hardcore is best in seven inch format. And you have two of your shorter and best songs on here. Uh, the theme song, the overrunted body song, and then also be there, which I think is like the best overrunted body song. Um, that song stands out for you as well. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I love be there. I, I wrote that song. I didn't write the lyrics, but I wrote the music for it. And I, and I just remember Aaron telling me, He's like, you can't just have one riff the whole way through. And I was like, oh, you can. Like, watch. I'll show you. We'll change up the speed and we'll go fast and slow, but using the same uh, pattern, uh, the same riff pattern. And it kind of, like, changed a little bit for him. He's like, realized, like, oh, wow, like, you can do that. <laughs> it does sound cool, actually. And so it was, 
Yeah, I love that song. Like, Be There was always one of my favorite songs to play. The OMDB theme song was great. I believe Aaron wrote that one. Um, but yeah, it was really fun recording that record and, and, and interesting enough. And I don't know if Daniel's ever talked about this on, on the podcast, but when we recorded that seven inch, a lot of people don't know for as much into music Daniel is, he has pretty bad rhythm. And while we were recording the seven inch, he was consistently about a half beat behind the music the, the whole time. And we recorded at double time. Jeff was losing his mind. Like, what is going on? Like, why is he behind? And I said, I don't know. I need to go figure it out. So I started talking to Daniel. I said, look, I'm going to start tapping your back. So while he was singing on the seven inch, I'm sitting behind him tapping his lower back to give him rhythm. So he doesn't lose the cadence. And that's how he did the vocals. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most erotic seven inch ever. It's very erotic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Daniel, fuck, he's like a few years too early for uh, Pro Tools because they could have just moved him. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they could have spotted him up. Yeah, it's like, I mean, now you just lay it down. It's like, hey, Roger, give me a little nudge, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so easy. But yeah, yeah, I mean, recording to to tape is something, something else. Um, yeah, and I think that was the last time, like, OMDB recorded to tape, I think. For that and the uh, um, the uh, um, split with Timex. Timex, those are the last times we record on tape, and after that, everything started being Pro Tools driven. So, for the LP, the Rusty Metals and Broken Badges, how do you record it, and where do you record it? Um, shit, I don't remember. Um. <laughs> uh, was it double time? I shouldn't put you on the spot like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if double time. Well, fuck, we recorded an O one or double time. And it was still like to a reel. Yeah. So, so that might have been the last time, and maybe Daniel just got better by then of being able to sing on time. <laughs> yeah, I only ever had to do it on the seven inch. I didn't have to do that on the on the subsequent releases. You know, I. I I don't remember much about recording the LP. I remember it being very rushed. I remember it being, we got to get more songs. We have to just push. And, and I think some songs, I think definitely hold up and, and sound great. And, and then it, a lot of it is just boring hardcore. I don't think it was that great of a record. Um, it's very like middle of the road. There's a few standout tracks, but, by and large, it's a pretty middle-of-the-road record, I, I thought. And still, like, I, I think I listened to it a few years ago, and I was like, geez, like, this is a very boring album. Um, but I think it, it was because it was we were putting out so much music, and we just kept getting volunteered for split seven inches, left and right, and comps, and this and that, that songs just kept going out the door. And some of them were really, really good, and just, like, would have been better served if we would have saved them for the LP, I think. But, um, but yeah, I, I think I, I don't remember the recording really much at all. Um, other than, um, being kind of rushed to, to write songs. And, and why do you feel like maybe you didn't jump in and, and tell the band to hold back a bit? Because like the last LP that you had done as a musician was like, you know, a, a hardcore masterpiece, right? Where you went in with like full intention 
and walked out of the studio with like what you wanted to accomplish. Is it- I, I just think I, I, I felt more of like taking a backseat because I joined the band like kind of after they started. And yeah, like I wrote a lot of songs, but I also felt that, I don't know. I would just kind of go with majority. Like what does the majority want to do? And I would just leave it to that, you know? And I, I didn't, I don't, I, I don't remember really ever putting my foot down, but I think we have like five split seven inches or something like that. Like it's crazy. Um, and you know, I, and I think some of those songs, like, like I said, could have been better served on the LP. And, and I, I, I don't know. I, I think I just kind of took a back seat and just let majority rule. I think I, I just didn't want to, I was just kind of like, yeah, sure. Go with the flow, like whatever you want to do. Like, you know, um, and I, and I think like when going through the LP, that's when it kind of started to not be as fun for me. Um, because I, I, I don't, I, I think I, the reason I don't remember is maybe I just didn't have any fun making, <laughs> making the record. And so it's just kind of lost to memory for me. Um, but, you know, I, I think when we did that split seven inch afterwards with Death Threat, I got really excited because I was super into those songs. Um, and that got me really stoked on the band again and touring, um, you know, I, I thought was, was great um, on the, on those records, but yeah, the LP was a bit of a, of a wash for me. Yeah. You play a lot of like big shows and short tour runs out the gate. I, I don't remember the time frame on them, but like you do a run with like American nightmare. Right. And I think you did East coast with carry on death threat. Yeah. Carry on death threat. We did stuff with like Bane and hope con on the East coast, uh, AN and, um, uh, show and then we did stuff with Panic and Breaker Breaker on the West Coast and um, so yeah we had a lot of runs like up and down and, and around the US for sure um, yeah we got pretty lucky I mean it was it worked out just because I booked tours and I met so many people that it was pretty easy to just keep that going and you know hey I got this new band we're coming to town like you know or reaching out to promoters and booking agents that I know and say, Hey, like I've done you a million favors for bands that have come to San Diego. Like, can you help us out and get us on a tour or book a few shows for us? And it always kind of worked out, you know, like people like Matt Pike were, were always super generous of helping us get on some shows and, um, kind of getting us on the inside lane on, on some tours and stuff as well. So it's always, um, been great to be able to keep like these friendships for so long. Um, and it's not about like, Hey, I, you know, give and take, it's just like, Hey, you know, this isn't just about us doing favors. It's we're friends beyond that. And so many people have been generous with their time and, and really helped the band out a lot. I mean, even people like Mandel of taking a chance and just putting out the records, um, was, was great on, on its own. So, how did you feel like being back on the East coast and like touring for the first time since you did it with unbroken? I was so excited. I mean, being able to play, you know, CBs for the first time with OMDB and being able to, you know, see all my friends again out there and, um, and play venues that I love to play at and play new ones that I, that I grow into loving. 
uh, it, it was awesome. And it, it was good. I mean, some of the shows were, were, were great, you know, well attended and, and great energy. And then some shows were meh, you know, but we, overall we got a pretty good reaction um, at, at most places. And we've been pretty, pretty lucky when when we would we would come to town most of the shows were, were pretty solid especially it helped to be on good tours you know you're touring with you know bane and hope con or uh carry on and death threat and like every show on the east coast is a banger because there's tons of kids coming out for those bands alone and then you pick up some new fans along the way so we got pretty lucky are there any standout memories from either of those east coast tours yeah, I mean, I think uh, shows in Richmond were amazing. Uh, obviously, playing CDs was great. Uh, Boston was, was really good. Um, you know, we even had a great show in Syracuse. There was like a good amount of kids that came out. And so, yeah, I mean, the East Coast shows were, were, were pretty great, you know, for the most part. And we were pretty fortunate to have enough kids come out um, to make the shows fun. Um, so yeah, I mean, those were some of the standout cities that I remember. Now I, I know firsthand about your, uh, the panic West coast tour. Cause I, I drove up, I think you guys drove back, but we went in my van and, uh, right. it was super fun. Yeah. Like that spot you played in Portland to like almost no one was like <laughs> sick, you know? And then the Seattle show was yeah. amazing. Yeah. I remember Portland being so crazy. we played this giant venue I, maybe it's called the roseland or the rose like i don't remember I think it was called the roseland I, I don't, it definitely held about five to six hundred people and i think they had like 40 paid people that night yeah. and so we're playing this giant venue with nobody in it and it but everyone made the most of it they made the best of it and it was still ended up being a fun time and it was just of fun energy with it but it was just so absurd to be playing in this giant room with nobody in it um and kind of a, you know, put, kind of like a pretty room right like i remember it being like kind of a pretty yeah. ballroom yeah no it was yeah it was it was really pretty and, and i think that it's funny because when you're when you're like playing in um like small venues and there's not a lot of people it's like it doesn't really matter you're just like whatever you just play and have fun and make the best of it. But when you're playing these humongous places and there's nobody there, it's real interesting case study in the human psyche of like looking <laughs> out, and like feeling so strange that you're up on this humongous stage with video monitors and you just look out to a sea of nobody. Um, you know, and, and it was, yeah, it, was, it definitely plays some mind tricks. It, just, it felt so weird, but it, and then you just got to laugh about it to get through it because it's just so absurd. Well, and you recover, right? Because like the next night in Seattle was like huge and giant dog pile on stage. Like it was ill. Yeah, the Seattle show was insane. I think that was at the Vera Project. Um, yeah, and that show was bonkers. Um, There's so many kids and just the crazy energy and super wild. It was fun. That was a great show. And how does that feel? Because like that bond between you and a lot of the Seattle guys and also just San Diego in general and like the Pacific Northwest, like how does that feel being able to come back with your newer project and having it set off like that? 
Oh, it was great. I mean, being able to, you know, see friends from, from various bands up there and just people that I've known forever and, you know, reconnect with those people and have a great show. It was just like, it, it feels great because it just, it just like gives you a lot of meaning behind what you do. It makes you feel great that you're, you're getting to travel to these cities to see your friends and then play a big show. And it's like the best of both worlds. You have a, you have a great night out. Plus you get to see friends that you've known by that point, you know, 10, 15 years. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's a great, great feeling. And that show is definitely one that stood out for sure. For that band. Do you have any memories of the in control van? Yeah, I, I remember it always wondering if it was going to break down. And then I remember the little flap on the back that, like, <laughs> if you had to go to the bathroom, you can just lay down on the floor and pee through the hole in the floor so you didn't have to stop. You could just keep going. <laughs> and I did use that hole, and it was great because I had to piss so bad. And I, you don't, you feel bad. You don't want to have everyone like pull the van over. So you're just like, well, I'll just uh, use this little hole here, and uh, and it was great. I got to do my business and then just roll back up, <laughs> go to sleep or whatever. So yeah, yeah, that was fun. And then uh, um, yeah, I just remember a lot of shit talking. We we show respect. Yeah. We show respect for Gatorade bottles in the uh, in control van. Don't pee in the bottle. Just go down the hole. Yeah, yeah, go the hole. <laughs> yeah, so good. Um, you so you do this blow death threat, and then you you leave the band before the second LP, correct? Although you you do participate in the LP. Yeah. So yeah, we did the death death threat split. And then the album was like mostly written. I think I had about six songs for it. I think I wrote like three or four of them. Um, and and then it just got to a point where I just, I don't know, I just kind of stopped feeling it and they wanted to do more and more and more. And I was like, I, I don't know, I need to like take a step back and, you know, maybe you guys have someone that could give, give more to this than I can, you know? So, you know, I kind of took a step back and, and started some girls, um, during that time. And then, uh, when they went to record the second album with Paul Minor up at, uh, Dave's house, I went there and did some backup vocals on a few songs and, um, yeah, and hung out there for a couple of days and then came home. So it was like nothing ill, you know, at all. It was just, I wasn't just a hundred percent into it anymore. So I kind of decided to take a step back. Do you remember the talk that you had to have, like breaching it and how like weird it felt? Cause it's so hard to like leave a band. Yeah. I just kind of said, you know, I remember talking to Daniel and, and Aaron and Tommy and just kind of saying, Hey, like, I love you guys and nothing ill, but I'm just like not feeling this. And, you know, do you guys want to keep going? Do you want to get something else? Like I can help kind of finish writing some songs. And, um, and then it kind of worked out. They, you know, had, a, had some replacement people um, that, that kind of worked out perfectly fine. 
you know? So I, I think like they were bummed, but it wasn't like I was like, fuck you guys. I'm out of here. It was very much like respectful. Yeah. Cause I love those guys, but it's just, I just wasn't, wasn't feeling it as much. So I needed to kind of step back and like, it just didn't feel right. Like taking up space for something that I wasn't fully into as much. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it was, yeah, awkward, of course, but it, but it wasn't anything ill at all. I mean, obviously I'm still all tight with those guys. Yeah. How do you compare the uh, second LP to the first? The second LP is great. I love it. I think it's really good songs, uh, some clever, clever, like lyrical things and, and just better songwriting. I think it was, it's a better paced record, I think. And it's more dynamic and it just sounds better. Um, you know, overall, I, I, I think the second LP is fantastic. Yeah. Is that weird? Like your, your next band that does LPs, like it's two bands in a row where the second LP is better. It's, it's a rarity in hardcore, right? Because it's it's very most hardcore bands don't do a second record, and then like for you to be in two bands in a row that the second record is actually better—that's fucking wild. Yeah, it's like yeah, avoid the sophomore jinx, right? We have the uh, uh, you know the the first album flop, or whatever you want to call it. But you know, not that the first record's terrible; it's just not great, you know, and. I mean, it's like what we talked about with Ritual. Like, it's not a terrible record. It's just not great, and it's it's full of me- mediocrity, you know. I, and that's how I felt about this first ONDV record, where the second one is dynamic and interesting on multiple levels, and I think that's why it's a it's a superior album. Let's let's talk about starting some girls. How does how does the idea come about? Um, so OMDB and AN were on tour and, uh, on the West coast and Wes and I had already kind of been friendly for a while through like emails and and meeting him when OMDB played, uh, back to school jam in Worcester. And, um, I stayed at his house that night and we just hit it off and talked, you know, uh, I don't know, until like four or five in the morning about music and and it just kind of stayed in touch and then they were coming out and they're like, yeah, why don't you guys play with us? So, you know, we, I don't know, we did like eight, seven or eight shows with them up the West Coast and we just started talking about music and it'd be fun to do something interesting and different and, and kind of old San Diego, kind of swing kids, heroin, Antioch Arrow type stuff. And he was all into those gravity um, early 31G bands and I believe they were going American Nightmare was going to Europe but they were leaving out of LAX so they had about uh, or maybe they were leaving the East Coast I don't know but he, there, he had about five days to kill and I was like well why don't you come to San Diego um, you know you can crash with me or stay with friends whatever down there and you know a friend of mine Sal has a recording studio and maybe we can just try to hammer out some music and just kind of see what happens. And so I uh, thought it was a good idea. And, and that's how some girls started. Was Ben in an early in- incarnation of some girls? Uh, just on a live show one time. 
So he played with you once. Yeah. And then Justin joins. Yeah. And then Justin joins. Um, so, but originally the first seven inch and the demo was just me playing guitar and bass on everything. And then Wes doing vocals and Sal doing the drums and the recording. Wow. That's cool. How do you feel? Yeah. about How do you feel about doing the first one? Is the first one the blues or the rains? The rains. Okay. And how do you feel about that? Like, what's your, what's your feeling when you get that done? Was it like what you went in and set out to do? Yeah. It, it encompassed everything. Frantic, manic, collapsing punk. Like it is just hanging on by a thread and it's all spur of the moment. It's all feeling and it's just, a ripping seven inch. I love that record still. Um, one of my favorite things that we had ever done as a band because it was just so earnest and, and just not really methodical. It was like, we kind of want to sound like this and then we just did it. And, um, and so when we had, uh, the, the demo was done, but we didn't have, um, we did, oh, the seven inch was done, but we didn't have vocals to it yet because uh, Wes was back in Boston still, and so we were sending the reels out for him to do the vocals out there. And uh, I, I played the seven inch or the recording for Justin with all the vocals, and I said, "Hey, you know, there's no vocals here yet; they're coming." But is this interest you at all? He's like, oh, "I don't know, maybe." And he wasn't really that interested. And then when the record was done, I remember Justin calling me saying, "Oh my God, like I can't believe I didn't put this record out." Like I totally screwed up this seven inches insane and so it was great that death wish took a chance and just said hey like we want to put this record out and it sounds interesting and uh you know we love you guys and let's just see what happens with this band and so that's kind of how the band started you know we just did that demo and then the seven inch um the rains and then did the blues after that yeah and because he skipped on the first one you're like you don't get the second one either stupid so we're doing the second yeah. one on Death Wish too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not that he's stupid. He's probably much smarter than me, but <laughs> just a phrase. Don't get mad. <laughs> but then it was like, you know, Wes was like, I think I want to move to San Diego and, you know, AM's breaking up. Um, you know, some girls was on tour and on the East coast and, um, you know, they would get, A.N. was getting ready to go to Europe and, and Wes was like, I, I, I don't think I want to go. And, um, you know, and they ended up like just staying in San Diego, basically. Um, and, you know, worked on, you know, just more record stuff, you know, with some girls and, you know, did the blues and, um, and then did the LP and the DNA seven inch. And so, yeah, it was it was great to to put that band together and have have fun and and do something that wasn't really happening in hardcore at the time. You know, it wasn't quite grindcore. It wasn't quite regular kind of standard hardcore. You know, it was kind of a, a throwback to you know early late eighties, early nineties San Diego bands, and it was fun to play something like that that wasn't really happening at the time in hardcore and 
so after we put out that first seven inch, you know, we decided, hey, we should start playing shows for real. We should start to like fill out the band and, and add more people. And so, yeah, we got Justin to play bass and then uh, Christopher from uh, Tristasia uh, was playing guitar for a while and uh, did a couple tours. And then we got Chuck from the plot to blow up Eiffel Tower uh, played when Christopher moved away. And so it was kind of a revolving cast of, of second guitar players for a while until we settled on Chuck. Did it, how did it feel like once Justin's in the band and you have you, Wes and Justin, like, did it feel strange being like kind of a a hardcore all-star band at all? I mean, I never thought about it that way. I just felt that, you know, I was like just, playing with my friends, you know, and because Justin I'd known for so long and Wes I'd known for, you know, a, a year or two by this point. And so for me, it just felt like I was just playing with my friends. I mean, even I think the first couple records is just as some girls was us and us only. It doesn't even name who's in the band. And that was kind of like by design to just say, hey, like, it doesn't matter who's in the band. Just listen to this record. And if you like it, cool. And if not, like, that's cool too. Um, and so it was very, um, that kind of just didn't matter. You know, I, I never even really thought about it that way, I guess, until you brought it up right now. It just felt more <laughs> like I'm just playing with my friends. Sorry to make you feel awkward, dude. Never my intention. <laughs> no, it's okay. You get it, though. <laughs> I, I, I do want to step back a bit and just talk about your relationship with Wes because it does seem like you connect on multiple levels. Like we've talked before about, you not really connecting with like some of the late nineties youth crew revival and then American nightmare and Bane being like two of the bands that they grabbed you and like made you excited about hardcore again. And I'm, I'm assuming, and that's always a terrible thing to do, but I'm assuming that he was like an unbroken fan. So it, it will, first off, is that true before I continue? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, he liked the band. Yeah. Okay. So, like you have this this mutual respect for each other, like in the bands you're in. Plus, you like a lot of the same genre, like the genres of like non-hardcore music. So, like, is that a lot of your kinship? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like kind of how we met. You know, he got introduced through a mutual friend at Back to School Jam, and to me, and then we just you know hit it off. Like I said, just talking about music and different stuff and traveling and, you know, him growing up in a military family and, and that type of thing. Um, and so it was, uh, yeah, we just hit it off. Like I would say mainly over music and, and that was kind of the big part of, of our friendship uh, in the beginning. And so, yeah, I, I guess you could say, uh, yeah, because it's absolutely true. Like, I wasn't like a huge youth crew revival person. There was very few bands in that genre that like I was genuinely into. It wasn't like I I like hated hardcore during that time. It just wasn't as exciting to me until kind of you know Hope Con and Bane and An came out. That like you know totally um, you know in striking distance, like that type of stuff, like got me super pumped on hardcore. Um, it wasn't that I was like 
not into hardcore at the time. I just wasn't as excited about what was going on. And then these bands all kind of created this like drive for me to like want to play music again and to want to see these bands and um and and to this day I mean I, I could say that those those bands definitely like reinvigorated my love for hardcore for sure. Yeah, I mean that's why I wanted to touch on it because I think it encompasses two of the greatest things about hardcore. Like one is that there's always going to be something coming that excites you. Right. And so like there's ebbs and flows and maybe you're not into everything. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean you're hating on it or whatever, but something's always going to come out and be wild. Like if you look at this year, like the way that people grabbed onto Gulch, like what a sick band to come out of kind of nowhere and to excite everyone, you know, I think it's amazing. And the other thing is just, I think it's amazing in hardcore that you can kind of like run in these circles that are like adjacent to each other, like the friendship circles, and you can connect to people like later in life. And it's like, you meet someone in your thirties or your forties or, you know, even your twenties and like become best friends with someone like that's amazing. You know? Yeah. That's beautiful about hardcore. I, I, I agree. Yeah. Just because like you, you can meet people that have like, you know, similar interests and backgrounds, like later in life. I don't know what, uh, what other subcultures or like societies like that is available. And so it's just one of the things that I love about hardcore and wanted to highlight. So thank you for uh, letting me go there. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, So you do the LP, the, all my friends are going deaf. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a collection with some extra tracks on it. So we, um, we were going to be touring more and we decided, okay, we're actually going to start playing shows like for real and trying to make things happen. And we, you know, decided like, let's put both seven inches on one LP plus the demo plus record like three new songs. So it kind of feels out a little bit. So that's kind of what all my friends is the collection plus like three new songs at the time. Um, and so that came out and, and it was great because now we had kind of more stuff to play off of because the songs, you know, they're not very long. Some songs are 30 seconds. Some songs are two minutes. So it was great to have enough stuff to actually play out. Um, and not just have like a 10 minute show, 15 minute show, which some of them were when we first started out because we just didn't have songs. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was really great putting that collection together. And that's a move, right? Like, you know, you do a demo, do a couple of seven inches and then just toss everything on a record with like some extra songs. Like that's the ultimate punk hardcore format, I think. Yeah. No, it's great because you just get everything in, in one shot. And I, I love when there's collections like that. I mean, I'm a record collector, so I still buy records. And, and yeah, I still buy seven inches, but it's always nice to have those plus everything on one LP. You know? And that was kind of the intent behind that. So the next record that you're going to do is the DNA will have it say, which is like uh, your next EP. And right. do the cover art on it is so ill. I love this thing. Yeah. Like what was the idea behind that? Yeah. This guy, Nick, he's a, a graphic artist and just 
really good at what he does. And, you know, he's done, a, he, he was working at Epitaph forever as like a graphic artist. And he was really tight with Justin and New West a little bit, but he and Justin were really close. He's like, oh, I know this guy, you know, can we, um, you know, let me, let's see what he comes up with. And, and that's what he came up with. And we were like, this is so cool. Like, we loved it. You know, just like a, a rabbit with its guts pouring out and then behind or in front of a rainbow. You know, we thought, it's just what a crazy image. And it just kind of fit, kind of the vibe of the EP, we thought. And, and yeah, that was really awesome. And, you know, what, what a lot of people don't know is Karen O from Yeah, Yeah, Yeah is actually sings on a track on that record. So ill. So Ill. Yeah, it's really cool. Like, yeah. I did, I just love not to go back to the art, but it's just it's such a rad right turn, you know. Like, because all the releases previously are, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong because I'm not a super fan, but it's kind of like the vibe is more Smithsy, you know, like the the artwork, and then to just come out of there with like this bright album cover is just so ill. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I know it's great. I mean, we kind of started doing that a little bit with like the, the All My Friends Are Going Death. It's like neon pink, right? And so this was kind of like a more artistic controlled version of that, but it's super bright and, and, and pastel neon colors. And it's very um, uh, like misleading. Like if you didn't know anything about the band and saw it, you'd be like, oh, this looks cool. And you hear it. And if you're not in this type of stuff, it'll rip your ears open, you know? So it was kind of, kind of a fun, fun way to kind of have an artistic spin on something that like might look somewhat like warm and fuzzy, but seeing kind of guts pouring out of a rabbit on, <laughs> on top of it, like kind of tells you what you're in for. Yeah. I mean, the, the, all my friends are going death is, you do experiment a bit with like the colors, but it's still like a, a two tone dark feel, even with like the bright colors. Yeah. And I also think too, like the band was very settled at that point. You know, we'd already like, it's, it was a five piece and it's been a solid lineup. And so it, that record, um, and the range are my two favorite and for different reasons. Um, but I, I think the reason why I like the DNA so much, the seven inch so much is because the band was so cohesive at that point. Like we knew what we were doing, we knew what we were about, we knew what you know what we were doing sonically and artistically, that it just really gelled in that record, I thought. And is the reason for the rain standing out for you just because it's like the original intent of the band? Yeah. Yeah. Because it was it was just three people in a room for like four or five hours just Turning and turning out wrists, turning out wrists, and and you know, I, I just remember sitting there in, in Sal's studio, practice studio that had a reel, reel to reel in it, sixteenth uh, inch tape <laughs> um, or quarter inch tape, sorry, um, and uh, you know, I'm just like cycling through wrists, cycling through wrists, and at one point, like Wes and Sal kind of look up and they're like, "That's it, like that's that's." that's what we're going to do. And then I just kind of built on that. And then we, we were able to kind of hammer it out and that's kind of how the demo was came out. And then the range definitely was an extension of that same manic um, type of vibe. And that's why I like 
like the range was my favorite because that to your point that was the original intent of the band was to have always have that like manic unpolished um like it might sound simple but it's it's not there's like an like it's very erratic and that seven inch really captured that yeah i mean sounds simple is the ultimate like paradox in punk and hardcore right it's like you listen to the Ramones, it sounds simple. You listen to Infest, it sounds simple. So, like, you try to do it. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there any standout shows with this band that you remember? Yeah. I mean, I remember, um, you know, again, like, playing CDs was great. Uh, Baltimore was fantastic. Uh, we played at the Auto Bar, and that show was really, really, really solid. Um, and then we had like great shows in Europe, um, you know, touring over there and, um, uh, you know, shows in, in Birmingham, uh, was insane. We were, our ferry, we were late, almost late to the show. Well, we were late to the show. Um, there was a, just an ungodly amount of traffic backed up, um, on, on the, on the freeway there. and we were like, we're not going to make the show. Like we're stuck. And our driver was like, I'm just going to drive in the emergency lane. And he drove in the emergency lane for like 30 minutes and completely skirted around this like end to end full stop. I mean, people were like out of their cars, like tight stops traffic. Like, I don't know what, I don't remember really why the traffic was stopped, but no one was moving. And our driver's like, if we don't leave, we're going to be stuck here for another like three hours at least. And we're not going to make the show. And it was this festival in Birmingham. And he drove in the emergency lane. We skirted around the traffic. People were honking, super pissed off. And how we didn't get stopped by the police or anything, I have no idea. But we got around it and then uh, called the promoter and just said, we're going to be late, but we're going to make it in time. And we pulled up and they said the band that was playing before you just take this, took their stuff off stage. So we like parked and as we're driving from, uh, from France and, um, you know, drove all, all day from France and, you know, took the ferry over and then drove all the way to Birmingham and got to the venue, opened up and then loaded on stage and started playing. Like it was so bonkers. So <laughs> like, so that type of stuff was um, like kind of sticks out. And uh, I remember our show in Leeds was really, really good. Um, like a really good turnout and super like rabid show. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some standout stuff that happened with that band and, and some of our uh, touring that we've done. You have like kind of a special connection with like the UK also, right? Like, aren't you a big football fan? I am. I am very big football fan. And, um, yeah, I started, started kind of watching in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, and, um, and reading like a news, a British newspaper called the bulldog, um, that had like football scores and scores about football. So yeah, I started following it back then. 
And, um, you know, that was like a connection that Daniel and I had too with Overmitted Body. So that was like one of the things that, you know, we always bonded over was, was English football. But, um, so yeah, being over there with some girls was great because, you know, I got to be in this place where I hadn't been yet with any other bands that I'd been in. And, um, so I got to go to these places and, and venues and, and, areas of London and um, different parts of England that I'd always read about and heard about, but hadn't been to yet. And it was, it was great to, yeah. to see that. And Rob, who's your team? Uh, Manchester United football club. Yeah. Uh, don't hang up on me, but uh, this is a crystal palace podcast. <laughs> Good for you. Actually, actually it's a show podcast, but, for for that oh, big, we like crystal palace. Now we're talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nah, I looked up the uh the location of of my English listeners and Daniel said I think that's Crystal Palace. So that's who I support now. They're all from like <laughs> one little area. But uh so respect. What's up, fools? And uh <laughs> but yeah, so how do you hook up with Epitaph for the next uh, some girls record? Um well, the Locust had a history with Epitaph, obviously, put out releases with Epitaph. And um, from my understanding, and this is not, don't take this verbatim, but my understanding, I think Epitaph was kind of looking at a, at American Nightmare as well. And um, that obviously, that band broke up. And so um, Brett, kind of was talking to Justin and kind of started talking to Wes and then Nick who's done artwork for us worked there and kind of just said, Hey, like we should all meet. And so Brett invited us up to Epitaph and it was great meeting him. Super nice guy. Um, it was really great to meet everyone that worked there. It was cool to see the offices and the warehouse. And, and he just kind of said, you know, I, I love what Justin's done with his bands and I'm a fan of Wes's and, I like what you guys are doing with this band. I'm interested, you know, what do you guys want to do? And we're like, ah, we could put out an LP and just kind of see what happens. And he's like, all right, let's do it. And then that's, that's how we got on Epitaph. So, you know, I think that Justin being on the label already kind of really, um, really helped that relationship. And then them wanting to work with Wes anyway, like kind of furthered that. So, How do you approach the writing of the record given that, previously like it's just been chunks of eps and now you're like going in to write an lp is the the intent behind it different very very much so i mean we actually demoed like we recorded everything in south studio and hired an engineer slash producer to help um to help us work this and we ended up doing it up for the record in orange county and um it was recorded by alex newport like super nice guy had some interesting ideas, you know, but it was, it was tough in a sense, especially for Chuck and I, because we wrote all the music. And so for us, it was very, well, I don't want to do what you're telling me because that doesn't sound good for what I'm trying to do. And then, you know, there was a little bit of that going on, you know, being told like, Oh, you can't write a song like this. You have to do it like X, Y, and Z. And, um, and, you know, Chuck and I kind of didn't really follow that with this band. It was, the, the intent was not to 
not to follow the rules, but with this and with Epitaph, like you kind of have to follow the rules a little bit for what, you know, Alex was trying to get out of us as a band. And so it, it, certain songs came out not the way I think we started to write them. And, and some songs came out better because of it. And some songs didn't really hit the mark. And so with Heaven's Pregnant Teen, um, you know, I would say probably 70% of that record is, is great. There's some really good tracks on there and they came out well. And I think Alex did a good job of pushing us a little bit to do things a little different. And other songs where he pushed us, I don't think they came out quite as well um, because it didn't have that as manic of a feel. Um, it felt a little too polished, I think, some of these songs. Um, but, but yeah, it, it was there was definitely a well thought out map of like how do we write this album like we actually sat there with like notebooks and and recorded with style and then would listen back to you know the 16 track quarter inch reel recording that we had done everything else on as a band and now it's like well this is just a demo and everything's going to be done for real at a, at a bigger studio with an actual producer so um so it was just interesting to have this six person kind of nudging you certain directions to try to get more out of you or to get less out of you in certain instances. So, um, but yeah, it was a, we, it was the first time I think I ever truly sat there and like wrote an album. <laughs> Were the other members more receptive to like the pushback from the engineer? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I would say that it wasn't that no one was receptive. It was just a little jarring, I think, because, you know, the band had had four releases at this point. So it was kind of like we had a way of doing things. And now it's like, well, that's not how you do it all the time. You need to do a little bit of this and take out a little bit of that to make this work better. And um, I, I don't I, I don't I would say that no one was and no one was mad it wasn't like there was anything heated going on it was just i would say jarring a little bit um for you know but i i would say chuck and i probably took it more than everyone and then you know when we were recording it got really rough a couple times like i think sal's arms were going to fall off at one point having to redo this drum part that was just so gnarly and even despite Pro Tools, Alex was like, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. And Sal's like, my arm is going to fall off. And so it's just kind of one of those things where you get pushed. And, and I think sometimes you get pushed so hard that it, it just like, it's just not working. And you kind of have to go back to that song later or something. So, yeah, but overall, it was a good experience. At what point do you decide that you're going to leave the band? So this was tough because, you know, the album hadn't come out yet. And um, my job that I had in San Diego was moving to Plano, Texas, and I wasn't going to move to Plano. And so I was trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do? And Wes and Justin were like, well, we want to just go for it and see how far we can take it with this album and this band and touring and see where it lands us. And I was like, I can't take that chance. And I got this new career in, in, in fraud prevention for e-commerce and I'm, I'm pretty good at it. And I'm worried that if I don't stick with it and I do the band stuff, like I'm going to be left empty handed in like five years wondering why didn't I take this other job? So 
it was like it was totally mutual, totally amicable. It was like, hey, I'll finish my guitar parts, and and I and I ended up getting a job in Seattle during this whole time this was happening. So I had about a month off in between my jobs in San Diego um, and Seattle, and uh, so we just continued to write the record because I had a lot of free time and. I finished my guitar parts, and the day after, I, I, my, my dad helped me load up my car, and then um, drove up to Seattle. Um, and what's wrong with Plano, Texas? Shout out Plano, Texas hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's wrong with Plano, Texas. If that's where you want to live, it's just like I'm born and raised in San Diego, and and I just like I. You know, I like Seattle a lot and I had a bunch of friends up there and I'm like, well, this is a great opportunity. I get to go move in a city that I love um, and I have a bunch of friends up there. So this worked out perfect, you know, and I didn't know anyone in Plano, Texas. So shout out Plano, Texas. Sorry, I don't know anyone there. Shout out. They would have loved to have you, dude. Could have really turned around <laughs> the vibe of the city, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you never know. You never know. What what could have been? Um so uh, pretty much immediately when you get to Seattle, you do a project called The Vows. And this 7-inch fucking rips. What the fuck, Rob? Like, <laughs> where do you pull this out of? Like this, you know, Unbroken Aside, which is like pretty untouchable. Like we're all aware of of that project. Like this is something special, I think, that is like kind of under the radar. What what's up with the vows? How do you do this, and what do you feel about this project? I I love that seven inch very much because I got to play you know again with like friends, and it was kind of kind of just hardcore. Kind of had a little bit of a undertow, a little bit of amenity vibe to it, um, and you know and that started because you know I was hanging out with Murph and Pettybone from. Uh, undertow all you know pretty pretty often and i was like we should do a band together and they're like yeah and then we had this idea like oh wonder if we do a straight edge band called the vows and everyone has to have been straight edge for at least 10 years um and then we recruited you know i was friends with the ram and friends with posi chris and we we're like hey we're doing this band you know are you guys interested and so you know we have a couple songs we're probably ready to write a couple more and just do a, like a three or four song seven inch and you know indecision's going to put it out um and that's how that band kind of came about and so we had a few practices and um and then went into the studio and we went in there with like two and a half songs and we kind of had to write the rest <laughs> and i i just remember ram going I can't ever write music like that again. Like it frazzled them because it was so like <laughs> panicky because you're like trying to like finish songs to get ready to record the next day. And you're like, how am I, how, how is this going to work? Like, how is this going to sound? And, and I, you know, I think it was, it was a little nerve wracking for him. Um, but yeah, in the end we had a blast and we got to play some great shows and we got to play with Sick of It All, got to play with GB, we got to play some house shows. And, you know, we would do those four songs from the record and then we'd do like two or three covers, uh, you know, as the set. And it was great. Like, I loved playing with those guys. I loved that record. And, you know, I wish we could have done more. And what was interesting, I would say like 
seven, eight months ago, there was kind of a text thread with all of us and we were all kind of talking like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to like go back and, and like record like another seven inch or something and, and try to do some shows and obviously distance and lockdowns and everything else kind of put the, put the brakes on that. But yeah, it was, it was a great, great band. Like, I, I loved it. What covers did you guys do? Oh, just different stuff like you know, slap shot covers and I think we did uh um stick of it all cover maybe. Yeah, we did a few different covers and yeah, it was just fun. Was just, fun. just so curious, just cause uh that seven inch rips. So I was just curious <laughs> what direction you go with the covers. But uh Yeah. Yeah. And then a couple years later you do well, first off, why does that band break up then? Anyway. Like it should I mean, still be going. Come on. Four well, songs? Murph, <laughs> I mean, Murph was moving, you know, got a job offer in the Midwest, so he was moving. And, you know, Pettybone, you know, was having a kid. And, you know, it was just just busy and time and, and life happens. And it was just kind of like, yeah, that was fun. You know, we put out a seven inch and got to play, you know, four or five cool shows and great, you know. And then that was kind of it. and. You know, but yeah, I wish we could have done more. I wish we had time to do more. Uh, but yeah, it just never happened. But it was definitely a, a really, really fun band to be in. A couple years later, you start doing a project called Narrows. Um, how does this come about? Um, that comes about in a kind of a crazy way because uh, Jody, who lives in London, was a booking agent for many years um, and done all kinds of bands and Godflesh and earth and whatever. Just like a bunch of different bands. Um, and he, he did the some girl shows in the UK when we first went over there and he and I just hit it off and just always kind of loosely stayed in touch via email and stuff. And um, uh, Ryan, uh, from these arms of snakes was like, Oh, Hey, Jody's coming to town. And I was like, Oh, great. Like, so I hit up Jody. I was like, we should do a band together. And he's like, how? I'm like, I don't know. We'll figure it out. You know, when I, I just said, how long are you going to be in town? He's like, Oh, probably a couple of weeks. I'm like, Oh, we can do this. You know? And Dave Varellen and I, um, I'm a huge botch fan. You know, and he's, he was into unbroken and we just hung out a lot. Um, you know, pretty often. And just always talked about it'll be fun to do a band together someday. And I was like, hey, here's what's going on. Like, Jody's coming out. Ryan's interested in playing too. Um, you know, my friend Sam from San Diego, he's a pretty good drummer. Like, we can get him to play drums. And, you know, maybe we can record a seven inch or something. And he's like, yeah, sure. So we rented a practice space. So we went to these Arms of Snakes practice um, spot. And Ryan and I kind of worked on a few riffs here and there. Um, when Jody first got to town at my house and just kind of a boombox recorded them like on our phones and then took that and went to practice space and then wrote the seven inch there. And then Ben Varellen, Dave's younger brother, recorded the EP. And that's how that band started. It's pretty interesting, the sound. Like, what are you going for? I think just kind of like heavy, 
you know, trying to use Dave's voice as a weapon, basically. Like, what can we do to complement his voice? Like, to make some some heavy riffs and just let him, like, just unleash his voice on these songs. And that's kind of, you know, kind of the vibe of it. And and Ryan's an incredible guitar player. He, like, writes a lot of abstract notes and he uses a lot of effects. And it's like, how do we layer this straightforwardness, like, pissed off hardcore like freight train hardcore mixed with like Ryan's like abstract music notes and, and leads and, and, and effects. And, and we kind of just married those sounds together and kind of sounds like a, like a beautiful freight train is kind of how, like I described that EP because there's a beauty to that record. And, but there's also like, like you're going to get smashed by it because it's so heavy and Dave's voice is so gnarly. And I think that first seven inches is killer. Is that your favorite record that the band does? No, but it, but I like it a lot. Okay. So you do the LP next, um, which is new distance and is the approach. I mean, it's obviously different. You're going to do an LP. And I think that like for a band like this, it lends itself more to an LP. Like I, I just, when bands are out of the straightforward hardcore lane, I like it in a bigger chunk, you know, cause if you're going to get crazy, it's like, I want a big palette of it. Like if you're going to take yeah. me there, take me there. You know, I want to, I want to take the ride. And, uh, I don't know. I, I feel that you really accomplished it with this, this LP. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I feel the same way. That's a perfect description. Like, it's kind of like, let's get a little strange, but let's still be heavy and kind of like everything is like rooted in hardcore. And, and I felt that you hear a little bit of all of us and that you hear a little bit of these arms of snakes. Uh, you hear a little bit of botch, a little bit of unbroken. Um, and you get to hear some straightforward, like heavy playing from Jody and Sam. And I felt that this was a really good representation of, of the band. You know, there's like certain songs are better than others. I think there's certain things about the recording that could have been better, but but I still like the record a lot. Like, and I I think that that record really represented the band of of like, hey, like we're heavy, but we can get a little weird. Um, and it, it, it I I don't know I felt it really worked out with that album. How do you feel about Discogs labeling you as math rock? <laughs> I I don't I maybe just, I don't know is this even like correct it seems like whenever I listen to your podcast or other people's podcasts there's a lot of arguments about Discog so is it really the source of truth no it's, it's the Wikipedia <laughs> of record collecting you know anyone can <laughs> no. like anyone can edit anything so some asshole yeah. nobody is math rock who the fuck were you <laughs> come on <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's some definitely some odd time signatures here and there, but I don't. I don't think we were that mathy compared to someone like Botch or um, like these arms of snakes, where there's truly like mathematical uh, algebra going on in some of their uh, cadence and some of their time signatures. Where this had a little bit of that, but very little. Um, you know, some songs definitely had it, and some songs didn't have it at all. Um, so. I don't know. That's it. I don't know if we would be that mathy. Although you do have back-to-back tracks that clock in at 
two minutes and 49 seconds. How do you pull that off? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I never knew that. <laughs> now you do. 185, motherfucker. All right. <laughs> yeah. So what are you, what are your lasting memories of, of this band? And how do you feel about it, like, in your catalog? I love it. I, I'm, I, I do enjoy every record we've done. I don't think there's anything that like sucks, at least in my opinion, that we had with this band. Like I'm really proud of it. I mean, especially the second LP, um, you know, it, it's really, really solid and really angry and just so brutal. And, you know, and it's, totally different from the distance and you can tell it's the same band like the dna is there but it's just so much more brutal uh i really love the second album but i i think you know we had great shows we got to go to europe a few times we toured the states a few times and had really good shows like always did really well in like new york and chicago and boston richmond etc really good shows and um yeah i'm very proud of that band what was and the what we were able to go? Sorry, Rob, for cutting you off. Um, what was the idea behind the artwork on the second record on the painted LP? Yeah, I mean, it was you know Ryan always did all the artwork. He was a very talented graphic artist, and you know his whole thing was just like like ugly melted painted face. You know, it's just kind of like painted, and you know that it's about masks and what you what you have on your face is it real um how you portray yourself to people is it real you know it's kind of like that like ugly ugliness behind people um you know was kind of the intent behind that yeah it's like half like dia de los muertos and then like half black metal it's wild yeah and yeah definitely dia de los muertos things is definitely like a big part of it for sure and I just, I also just love like that. It's like so clean, like the, the makeup that like the body is like a very normal human body. And then like the artwork is all zany. So like the juxtaposition between like this plain, no tattooed body and like a crazy artwork on the face is, is pretty wild. It's striking. It's a, it's yeah. just a nice piece of art. Well, what that is, is that's an actual person that posed for that photo the album of course and yeah and he um you know did some amazing uh graphic work on on that album yeah and i agree like i love how clean it is but then it's like really uh stark and and fucked up looking at the same time yeah it's like you can you can look at it as like a a clean looking piece of art or you can like dig into it and have it look kind of crazy and ugly it's it's yeah it is striking yeah yeah and that was a, that record was really tough to write like we um we had a very limited timeline and we had to get it out just because there was tours coming and other things going on and we only had like five songs for it and so we got to the studio and just hammered out the rest of it um, in the studio and um, it was it was a really tough record to write but in the end it ended up being um, super super well put together I'm really proud of that album 
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, uh, just the approach of writing things with like planning them out and overworking them compared to doing them under pressure. Like, what do you think is the move and, and what has been the output from those different approaches? I mean, I think it depends on like what you're trying to do. You know, with this band, it was really hard because Sam and I lived in San Diego, Dave and Ryan lived in Seattle, and Jody lives in London. So everything was done via email, sending MP3s around. I have this riff. I mean, it was just like riffs galore, constantly listening to songs, song ideas. And then eventually, and what we would do is we would always do a tour because that brings Jody out here for his visa. So we would do the tour. And then we would, um, at the end of the tour, we would go into a practice space and hammer out the songs as best we could and then go to the studio. And I think with new distances, we had a lot of time to do that and really be methodical about um, what we were doing and the intent behind it. Where with Painted, it was very, we did a tour, we, um, the day after the tour went straight into the studio with five songs. It's clearly not enough for an album. And so we ended up having to write the rest of the record in the studio. And maybe we only had four songs. Um, we take that back and we only had half the album written. So we ended up going in the studio and telling the engineer, you know, just kind of roll tape along the way when we tell you, just so we can hear back like what we're writing and kind of figure out how these parts go together. And then Jody was Skyping in and playing guitar riffs. And then we would kind of hear that. And then we would go to back into the studio and try to recreate what he was doing via Skype. So it was really hard to write that record. And so, but I think, you know, to your question around like what, what's the move? Is it, rehearsal, 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 and then putting out something, or is it you just get in there and bang it out and you vibe it out and it's what feels good, that's the record. And I, yes, you need to practice and yes, you kind of have to have a vague foundation of what you're doing. You can't just go in blind with nothing, but I prefer to do more off the cuff. I prefer to have it more manic and like under the wire or, um, you know, to the wire, just that where if you don't get this done today, like you will not have an album because the studio's booked, you know, everything's, all the dominoes are starting to go move forward and you have to like be the domino to fall over and, and get your record out and, and be part of that machine um, or be part of that process. And so for, for me personally, I like to write under pressure. I like to do everything at the last minute because it just comes out. And I, that's a lot of my best stuff has come out that way. Um, when I try to overthink and overwrite and just sit there and, and marinate on a riff over and over and over or marinate on ideas over and over, I feel like I get lost in it and I lose it and it's no longer a feeling. It's a job. And I like to write with feeling and, um, and, part of that feeling is manic pressure, manic necessity. Like I have to get this done and there's no choice and, and it forces creativity for me. And so that's how I, I like to, to write. And it's hard. It's not everyone likes to write that way. Right. But the manic thing works 
only if you've already crafted the intent, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. If you say, this is what we're going to do. And that's kind of what I talked about is like, you can't just go in blind and have nothing. You kind of have to have a foundation for what you're doing, right? Just right. like song ideas on phones or um, song ideas on your laptop, whatever it is. Um, you have to have some rough network of, 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 uh, or a rough pattern of, of ideas to stitch together in the studio. And that's always what I'd like to do. Um, I just, I, I find the process of hammering something out over and over and over. Like the, then when you go to record it, like I always feel that the feeling's gone. It becomes very mechanical. And, um, because you're just like, you're, you're doing something via repetition. Like I've, We've practiced, practiced this song 50 times in the practice space. Now we feel we're tight enough to go record it. And then you go and record it. But at that point, it's just, just like repetition, mechanical way of doing things. And I get it. That works for a lot of people. Obviously, there's millions of hundreds of thousands of great songs that were written this way. But for me personally, I like the yeah, we could practice and kind of have some rough ideas and let's just go in there and hammer it out. Like, that's what I like. Like the engineer sitting there kind of impatient, like, you know, that just adds to the pressure because they're just sitting there like, when am I supposed to hit record, <laughs> you know? And so you have pressure coming from different angles and that always feels good to me because it like forces the creativity out. And that's like, but it's hard sometimes for people. Why why does this band end or is it open ended? Might there be another Narrows record? Um, it's kind of open ended. I mean, we never fully broke up. We just kind of stopped playing, you know, and we I don't know, about a year and a half ago kind of started writing some more songs and kind of kicking around some ideas and then um last year we actually played a show, a couple shows, um, in Seattle and Tacoma went and played a festival in Seattle and then the next night played like a small show in Tacoma. And, you know, so the band is, it's not done, done, but it's definitely like this, like long hiatus, especially now, right. There's like, there's nothing going on right now um, to where that would allow us to do anything anyway. So, but yeah, we, we talk about maybe doing some stuff again someday. And, but for now it's just kind of, uh, hung up. Yeah. It just seems like kind of timeless where it's like a project that you just do indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. If it feels good, then just do it, you know? And I mean, we still talk all the time and, you know, still, still close. I actually, right before this interview, I was actually just texting with Jody in London. So, you know, like it's great that, you know, we're still, still talking and obviously Sam and I are partners at the coffee shop. So, um, you know, the, those friendships are still there. So it's not anything like that. It's just, just life and time more than anything getting got in the way. Do you do anything between narrows and SS warhead? Um, musically. No, I mean, not really. Um, kind of kick around a few things here and there. You know, something I did do um, that I realized is, you know, during some girls when Wes was going to move back to Boston, he had this idea of a band called Exoskeletons, and I played bass on some of those songs. 
um, on that project that he that he worked on. Um, and that was something that happened kind of in between some girls and narrows. And, uh, but yeah, post, post narrows, like, or even, yeah, I haven't really done anything. It was like, you know, got married, had a kid, opened up the coffee shop and, you know, and work and everything else is just like too busy to play music. So I'm like more of a fan at this point and just go to shows when I can. Um, and, you know, help out with shows here and there. Um, but yeah, SS Warhead was like one of the last things I've done outside of Narrows. And it's a ripper. Like again, just like vows, like you come out with it. Like, what's up? Still here, fool. <laughs> yeah, it was the same thing, right? So Narrows was going to tour in Europe and we were flying into Prague and we had three days off. So Sam and Jason uh, from Sparkmarker was playing second guitar for us at the time for that that particular tour because Ryan couldn't make it, so Jason filled in on second guitar for that tour, and um, we were like, we should do some crazy fucking DB type stuff. And and Thomas, who's our driver um, in 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 uh, based in Prague, and we're like, hey, do you want to sing for this? And, you know, do you have access to a studio? And he's like, yeah, we had some very loose ideas. Like we um, landed, flew in, landed in Prague. The next day went to a practice space and we just kind of hammered out some ideas. And then the day after that, we went to the studio and ripped out four songs in that day. In like seven hours, it was done. And it was so crazy because we only, we could only do it once because that night after we were recording the some uh, the narrows tour started in Prague. And so we recorded in the day and then went to the venue, did sound check and then the narrows tour started and then we left on tour. So we only had like those six hours at the studio to pull this off. And again, that goes down to the manic frantic pace of look, we have some loose song ideas, let's stitch it together. And then everything else we're just going to make up in the studio. And that's exactly what we did. And that's how that EP came out. And I fucking love that record. It is so gnarly and so brutal and just great TV crust type stuff. Like, and so, um, again, that's like how I like to write. And, you know, thankfully, you know, Sam was used to that and, you know, Jason was pretty malleable to it and it just worked out. Yeah. It comes out in 2016 on indecision. And I, I want to do a quick sidebar because he's so important to me as well. But like, how rad is it to have someone like Dave that like supports your projects? Like you can do something like this project. That's really a snapshot in time. And it's like an idea coming from you as like a creative force. And to know that it has like a landing ground in someone that like believes in your full musical journey. Like, isn't that fucking amazing? It's, it's awesome. I mean, I know Dave for, you know, 25 years, 30 years, maybe at this point, I think I met him in like 90, 91, something like that. So, yeah, I've known Dave for a very long time and we've always been close. I mean, we lived together for almost three years and had a great time. And, um, you know, and it, for me, it's just amazing to see what his label's done. Right, it started out just small and just little by little, and, and being able to 
do all these things. Um, you know, I, I just, it, I'm so proud of him of what he's done because by and large, he's done it mostly by himself. You know, he's had some help here and there, but he's mostly done it by himself. And it's incredible to see what the labels become. And those discographies are awesome, like the Instead stuff and just everything else that he's done, Undertow, the rules. He's, he's a great, great guy. Yeah, shout out to Dave Ito as well. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and that's a great segue because to end on this, I wanted to touch on on this stuff because um, Indecision, they do the Unbroken re-releases. Let's touch on those, but also we need to talk about the Unbroken reunion. Um, and this is kind of, this is hard to talk about. And so if you want me to cut it out or you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. Um, but can we talk about the Unbroken reunion? Like, why this happens and so forth. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone knows Eric passed away and, you know, unfortunately took his own life and kind of upended everyone around him for it. And, you know, he was, he was in a bad way and, you know, I, I, yeah. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. And, And I think that it's, yeah, it's sad, you know, still, I mean, it's many years on and it's still a, a bummer, you know, and, um, you know, even still talking to his mom and talking to his brother sometimes and it's just, it just fucking sucks, you know, that he's not here, especially how talented he was. And, you know, so Eric passed away and obviously there's expenses and funeral costs and everything else. And, you know, his mom you know, they just family just it's not like they have a bunch of money or anything. And so, you know, we're like, let's play a show and then we'll donate all the money to Eric's family. And so, you know, we were kind of kicking around the idea, like, do we or do we not get a second guitar player? And we just decided like, no, we just can't do it. And so we decided to play it as a four piece. And originally it was going to be booked at the showcase theater and Izot, who I was, like I don't know somehow we just like always hit it off and um at the time he had a showcase San Diego and for like a couple years I ran a a goth industrial club out of there that was something I did in between those kind of lost years of not playing in hardcore I was like doing a goth industrial club for a few years um, at the showcase San Diego. So, you know, Izot was there all the time and we just knew each other because I would go to shows at Spanky's and obviously play the showcase. So we were always on great terms. And, you know, I told him what happened. He's like, Oh, that's sad. And I said, you know, we were thinking about maybe doing at the showcase. And he's like, I don't think that's a good idea. I think it's too big. You'd probably have to play like two or three shows. And, you know, I'm getting access to this new venue called the San Bernardino Arena. They used to do like boxing and wrestling and stuff out there. Um, you know, and it holds like a couple thousand people, like 1,800 people. You might want to think about doing it. And I was like, I don't think that many people are going to show up. And he was like, I think they will. And so we took a chance and yeah, like 1,800 people showed up and it was bonkers you know and and it's like you know we wanted bands you know that outspoken to be there was important because eric 
loved Outspoken. And it was one of the reasons we ended up on New Age. So it was important to make that happen. And to this day, I'm still very appreciative that, you know, Mike and Dennis and John and all those guys um, did it because I know that would have meant a lot to Eric that Outspoken got back together to play for him. And, you know, Crimson Curse, just because it was wild, crazy San Diego stuff, and I knew it would be weird. But then we wanted to have a couple uh, new bands, you know, that people have never heard of just to, like, open the show because to give these, like, new bands a chance to play in front of a bunch of people, you know, and kind of give back to the scene a little bit. And then, you know, we had a few expenses to, to pay out for, you know, flying people in and, you know, production costs, et cetera. But everything left over, like, we gave to Eric's family to pay for um, to pay back like funeral costs and things like that. How did it feel having that many people come out? The shocking and terrifying and sad and happy and awesome and terrible at the same time, because the only reason we were doing it is because of what happened. And it just was like terrible feeling of like, why are you know we're playing this show because he died we're not playing it because we're stoked to be playing you know because um, we never had intentions of getting back together and playing shows i mean we did the band and it was great and we just kind of left it alone and you know about three and a half years after we broke up that happened and so that's you know it was it was a whole gamut of emotions. Um, I'm glad we did it in the end because it was a beautiful thing, especially looking back on the video that our friend John made of it. Um, you know, it was, it was an incredible moment, I thought. And it was really beautiful to see that many people come out, especially when Dave said, you know, can we have a few moments, can we have a moment of silence for Eric? To have 1,800 people just be silent was just like just chills, you know? So I it, it just felt that people at that moment, it felt that everyone was there for the right reasons. And like, it felt good, you know, kind of got over that. Like, why are we doing this? And as soon as like, it was just dead silent, like all those nerves of like, why are we doing this completely went away? It just felt right at that point. Yeah. And, and unbroken is like, I don't know. I never got to see you on the first run. This is like the time I saw you, but it seems like there's so much emotion pouring into the songs and playing anyway. How did it feel different? Like this night back compared to like when you're firing on all cylinders, it's just a wall of emotion, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a, a flood of everything of like, I, I, I remember playing certain songs and just staring out in the crowd and just like there's certain parts that were very vivid to me. And and I remember this one part and, and we're playing D four and which is that, that quiet breakdown part. And I'm just, I just remember playing that part and just having this like blank feeling and all I could think about was Eric that whole time in that slow part, just thinking about him and that part. And it just was like, just like beautiful and gut wrenching at the same time. 
and those certain things like that would happen like throughout the show or just seeing how many friends came out and family came out um, to support. It was, it was an incredible wave of emotions for sure. Um, how did the idea come about for doing the reissues? Um, you know, like new age wasn't really kind of going anymore. And, you know, we were like, Hey, we should put this stuff back in print. And Dave's like, I'm willing to do a reissue. Like let's like, you know, put out, you know, a, a couple, you know, a couple things we can put out, you know, stuff on CD, stuff on vinyl. And so that's kind of how it came about. And, you know, Dave, um, you know, because it's like you, you, the band felt very special, but after Eric's passing, everything kind of felt a little extra. So when you're taking these things that someone was a big part of and you want to make sure, like, it's treated right, you know? And, like, not that Mike didn't treat it right. It's just, like, the label wasn't really going at this time and things were kind of going in and out of print. So we decided let's just give everything to Dave and let him kind of, curate and maintain kind of this like museum of, of, of music um, in a way that kind of works for everybody. And that's kind of how it came about with the reissue. So we decided to do one with like a, you know, a collection of seven inches and pumps and stuff. Um, and then, you know, do one with both albums on, on one CD. And that's kind of how it all came about originally. Yeah. They're, they're three years apart. So in 2000, the It's Getting Tougher to Say the Right Things, which is the re-release of the 7-inch and the comp tracks. And then in 03, you do The Death of a True Spirit, which is both LPs. And then in 2010, you toss everything together, and it's the illest. Yeah. Do you feel- yeah, I love how the box that came out. Yeah. I love it. And it's just, it's a, I don't know. I think you, you already said it. It's just... I, I love the idea of keeping things in print, right? Like timeless stuff. Like let's make a timeless release. Um, can you talk anything about like doing the layout stuff or, or how you want to curate this? Like all these different ones. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that it came out because we started playing shows again. Right. And so we did that burning fight festival and it came down to, um, you know, we weren't going to play and we get asked all the time to play this fest, that fest. And, you know, Oh, we'll pay you this fly out. And we're like, no, because it just was never really about money. And our friend Jim Grimes and some other people were like, Hey, we're putting together this fest and it's kind of being built around this book. And, you know, it's going to be in Chicago. And we've always liked Jim a ton, but he was the first person that kind of ever approached it of, Hey, if you guys want to play the show, like we'll create some sort of benefit that you guys want to give money to. Like we'll just pay for flights and, you know, hotel for a couple nights and then all the money left over will donate to a local charity. And that kind of was the first time someone said like, this is what we want to do. And most of the time it's like, we'll give you, you know, X amount of thousands. And it's like, well, that doesn't matter to us, you know, like it's, and Jim went about it the right way and he thought about it long and hard and finally decided like, okay, if you're going to give this money to charity, like we'll fucking do it. And that kind of 
spurns the like, well, we need to like actually put together like a vinyl box set of like, and how do we go about it? And I found this like soul record that had like a triple layout. Um, and I said, well, we, we can fit everything over three LPs and we can do a layout like this. And so Dave took it to Pirate Press and they figured out how to like ape that uh, record and uh, that layout. And so you can do a triple LP in um, with a double spine um, sleeve. And so, yeah, the design work that went into it, and we decided that we wanted to do a Burning Fight LA where we curated again, like some bands that we played with back in the day, you know, bringing down Undertow and, and um, you know, just having different bands play Festival of Dead Deer, um, just to make it interesting. Cause that's when we play shows, they were always really eclectic. And so we wanted to kind of keep that going. And again, just like we just, after expenses, like donate the money to charity. And a lot of people don't know that we did that because we weren't talking about it. So, you know, pretty much every show we played, like the money went to someone else. Um, and so we never really talked about it, but there was always a lot of like, oh, you're just, you know, getting a paycheck and blah, 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 blah. But I mean, and even if we were getting a paycheck, it's not like we're raking in millions. We're not fucking, you know, Motley Crue or something, you know? So I, I think that, you know, so we decided like, hey, if we're going to play these shows, like let's put together something special for the show. So we put out the gray one, which was only for the Glass House show, basically. Um, um, so we put out, and then we, in the meantime, we were working on like a more long-term version that was just going to be a standard version available. And every time we played different union shows, we would print press a different color to take to that region with us how did it feel to play again it was great it's hard i think emotionally like just given what the output is like emotionally for that band it's really hard i mean especially when you know we were like playing in in tokyo and in japan and like kids were coming up and just like crying and hugging and people were telling us like, Oh, you know, when you play, you know, in Japan, like kids are polite and, you know, they'll go off, but they kind of just chill. And in between bands and people were like yelling and hugging us and like crying. And it was, I don't know, it was draining. And I remember calling my wife and being like, I can't do this anymore. This is so draining, like emotionally, like I am like crying on the phone because these kids are crying to me or these grown men are crying to me. And, and it just like blows your mind. And, and it was beautiful and heart wrenching and, and um, emotionally draining, but it was great to, play places, you know, play London and play Prague again and, and play all these places and people that you hadn't seen in a long time came out of the woodworks to, to, to be at the shows and they would bring their kids to the show. And there was a lot of that. And so it made it all worth it because we kind of got to like, I felt like recreate what it was like when we first toured through only on a slightly bigger scale, but it was, it was really, really cool um, uh, to play 
to, to play the reunion shows and kind of space them out and just do one like in various pockets instead of trying to do like a whole tour. Yeah. Can you talk about why it was it was important to do a Shea show as well? Um, because that place was everything to me growing up. I booked my first shows there. I went to a lot of my, you know, formative years as a high school kid. I went to a ton of shows at the Shea and um, so it was important. And when we played, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, they were in a lot of financial trouble at the time. And so we played the show and like donated like four or $5,000 from that night to the Shea, you know, to, to help them out. And that's why we played the Shea and that's why it was important. And that's why like that venue matters because it's a safe space for people, no matter who you are, um, to come and have fun and enjoy music of all different types. And yeah, there's a lot of punk and hardcore shows there, but there's other stuff going on there too. And for us, it was important to play there because we all grew up growing, going there and we, uh, it, it felt, right to play there and it was a secret show we didn't tell anyone till the day of um that first time and you know the bands kept it quiet you know we never really said anything and it was like at noon that day we just said we're playing at the shade tonight and a shitload of people showed up and it was great uh because it generated a ton of money for the shade and we had a great time playing Okay, to wrap it up, uh, without you talking about them playing in Pomona and making me jealous for like one of my top five show regrets of not going to, can you talk about booking Negative Approach at the Shea? <laughs> that is one of my favorite shows I've ever booked because they're my favorite hardcore band of all time. Like them and Seven Seconds are my two favorite hardcore bands. And, you know, I knew Ron Martinez a little bit. Um, just from being around and, and things. And so Spencer and I would always reach out to him. Like, we really want NA to play the Shea. We really want NA to play the Shea. No, no, no. You know, you guys, you know, you have your $5 tickets and like, it's so expensive to get these guys to come out. And, you know, it has to be done on a tour run. And then there's, you know, so it was just hard. We tried for a few years to get them to come out. And then one day we were just, I just told Spencer, I was like, look, I don't care if I have to pay out of my own pocket to meet the guarantee, but we need to freaking do this. And so, you know, Spencer reached out to Ron and we're like, look, we'll do a $20 ticket and we'll meet whatever guarantee like that you need. And Ron said, okay, like they're coming out. So we'll add uh, Shay stop on this tour and it, it fucking worked out. And I could not believe that negative approach was playing the Shea Cafe because not only are they my favorite band and I, I got to see them a couple years prior to that Shea show um, at the, at, in uh, Pomona. You're supposed to not bring that up. What the fuck? <laughs> I can't help it because that's the best <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> and that's a, that's, a, that's a fact. Ask Mandel. He'll probably back me up on that. But um, but it was um, it was important because we got to have a couple local bands open. I think Greg's band, I think Clocked In, opened that show, um, and um, and so I don't know. It was just great to have a couple locals play, have Negative Approach play, and people were just going berserk. 
like me included, like I lost my mind when they played because it's just, it's just what you do when that kind of coach plays, but you're like going crazy and, you know, getting hit by Joe from Infest and seeing that guy lose his mind to a negative approach. And you're just like, this is such a great feeling. You know, Spencer and I were so psyched that we pulled that off. And, you know, I, I wish we could bring it back. Hopefully one day we can. But, yeah, it was an incredible, incredible night. Yeah, I'm forever indebted for that show. I love it. Top yeah. top five. Yeah, it was great. Not as good as Pomona, though. <sighs> Fucking asshole. <laughs> this, dude, I, I mean, I can put, I can count on my hands, like, you know, I I never got to see Warzone. Could have, you know, but like the one time I could have seen him in Santa Barbara, it got canceled like day of the show. And it's like I didn't have a way to go to showcase. So regret yeah. it. That Pomona show, I have no fucking excuse. I think I was just washed up and living in San Diego and didn't want to drive. And so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm the true asshole, you know. And then I've still never seen Cox Bar. I should have gone and seen him because they played the same spot as the Unbroken Reunion once. And I was like, ah, I don't want to go to a show that big. And now, like, this many years later, I'm like, why the fuck didn't I go see Cox Bar? God damn it. Yeah, they never came back to SoCal after that. I know. And it's like, well, if they, yeah, I know. Every every time I see them playing punk rock bowling, I'm like, ah, should I, uh, should I go? Uh, I don't know. But yeah. I'm going. Next time they play after COVID, that's the number one fucking band I'm going to see. <laughs> Wherever they are, I'm flying. But, yeah. uh. Yeah, we're all marching to the opening band, man. Every band's going to get a stage dive when COVID's over. I know. The first show back has to be the vows, dude. What the fuck? <laughs> I'll be in the pit. <laughs> but, uh, Rob, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap this up? Uh, I don't think so. I, I feel that, uh, I don't know. Was, was this exciting? Was it good? Was I well represented? I don't even know. It's so late, but I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think there's, there's anything else to, to chat about. I mean, I, I, I think we've covered everything. Yeah. You know, I feel good about this. Yeah. It was great. You know, for a part two, it's the best one. I haven't done one yet. <laughs> so, so I just, I really appreciate your time and I know everyone loved to have to hear having you on the first time. So, I appreciate you taking the time to do this again. And you're very important to the podcast. So you one of the early patrons, got to say. And I am. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's just, it's important to have like people that you love and respect, like support your projects. That's why I wanted to mention like Mandel. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's important to feel that support from people you like and respect. And that's what keeps things like this going. You know, so much, yeah, much thanks to you. Yeah, no, thank you for having this podcast. I love it. I love hearing old hardcore stories from, from everybody and, and from people I don't even know. I mean, that Steve Larson interview, my God, I could listen to him go for like two more hours compared to my boring ass. Like he was, that interview was fantastic. Like all these things I always wondered about instead. And like, he answered it all. And like, I got to learn so much about people because of your podcast. And that's why people should smash that button. Smash it, smash it. Yeah. I mean, my favorite thing in the world is probably like people getting to know like characters from this podcast. Like when you mentioned like, Oh, I love listening to episode one, talk about this. I'm like, 
oh, somehow Rob knows Joe now. Like, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love it. I mean, yeah, the legend Joe Revis. I mean, I for me, it's like, it's just really cool because he's, you know, around my age, but from a totally different scene. And so to kind of hear his perspective on what was going on in, in Oxnard at that time, you know, people like him and Fred Hammer, like, I love hearing those stories. I mean, it's, it's a great way to document kind of the history of the scene. And for the most part in Southern California, it's great. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you. Thanks so much for your time. Do you feel like you've been well represented on, on your second episode? I do. I do. Hopefully it's not too much to consume. We're a little under two. So we're, we're right in the, the money spot. Okay, good. Yeah. As long as it doesn't go over two. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's not three hours of youth crew, we're okay. All right, Rob. Thanks so much for your Let's time. Talk about, hold on, hold on. Unless you're talking about side by side, then you can talk about youth crew all day. Side by side. I'm, I'm good with it. Yeah. Three hours on side by side. I'm good with it. The, the whole jewels catalog. That only yeah. seven inches is pretty untouchable, too. It's a ripper. Yeah, man. All yeah. right, Rob. Thanks for your time. All right, man. Yeah, take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye.